All right. So reading from chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great, thank you, Vashti. Well, if you could um, keep that uh, page open in your Bibles or keep your Bible app open, that would be really helpful for, for me as we look at God's Word together. Uh, we'll be heading towards the New Testament as well. But let's just pray, shall we, as we come to God's Word. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you that you understand each of our lives, each of our hearts as our Creator. Thank you know that you know all that we're facing, all that we're anxious about, all that we are rejoicing in, all that we are cast down by. And we thank you that you are close to the brokenhearted. So Lord, would you speak your comfort, your kindness, your gentleness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of your Holy Spirit. Please help me in my weakness as I speak. Please help us all in our weakness and sinfulness as we listen, that we may see Christ more clearly and adore him. Amen. Well, what is a Christmas you can believe in? 
Apparently, it's the little Christmas. A Christmas you can believe in. It's big on quality and low on price. Uh, you know, you could go for the icing on the cake mince pies or the deluxe dark chocolate and salted caramel cottage. I'll leave you to browse that later. Now, obviously, other supermarkets are available. But they're keying into something about each of us, aren't they? A Christmas we can believe in. Cheap quality, if that's not a contradiction in terms. Really? Is that all there is to Christmas that can be believed in? A Christmas which is both affordable and yet still good. And we're bombarded by such messages. We'll have them every part of the day, whether we're going to the supermarket or, or watching TV. How are we going to afford Christmas this year? Not that there's anything wrong with enjoying good things, good things that God has given us for our enjoyment, feasting being one of them. But how can we avoid these small good things taking our attention away from the great and good thing that God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we celebrate at Christmas, the coming of God the Son into the world. Is that believable? Is it more believable than the bargains we're looking forward to trying to get? More thrilling than a cozy Christmas dinner with the family? Is this message of God the Son coming into the world really the most believable thing about Christmas? Well, we're all going to be struggling with this, aren't we? So I think as we come to the Bible, we, we want to get this big picture into our minds, that the, that the plan that God the Son would come into the world as a human being, it began before anything was. And it's more real than the food on our table and the table. It's the fundamental truth of the universe. And we can see this plan being worked out as we come to these words of 2 Samuel 7, written a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. First thing I hope that these words will help you and me is to adore the character of the covenant Lord. Adore the character of God. See, picking up at verse 1, we see that David has a really good plan, a noble plan. He wants to build a house for the Lord. He was living in luxury, this panelled house. That was luxury for the day, to have wooden panels in your house. Whilst the Lord symbolically lived in a tent. And David was right to be uncomfortable about this. And so he planned, if you look at verses 1 to 3, to build a house for the Lord. And, and, and Nathan agreed with him. The Lord was surely with David, so just do what you want, David, because the Lord is with you. But verse 5, this was not the Lord's plan, because it wasn't the right way round. Verse 5, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me? A house to dwell in? Is, is that the right way round, David? No, grace works the other way round. It, it's a reminder for any church that it is the Lord who builds the house. He is the one at work. Not even David could claim to build the Lord's house. But that's not the, the main point of these verses. The Lord reveals 
his humble, wonderfully humble commitment to his people that should set our hearts singing in adoration of what God is like. Have a look at verse 6. I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, Yahweh the covenant Lord, the one who redeemed his people from Egypt, was content to dwell with his people in a tent. And even more remarkable than that is why they were wandering around in the desert. Why were they wandering around in the desert? Because of their sin. Because of their rebellion against this Lord. And yet the Lord moved with them from pitch to pitch. And then even in the promised land, when they began to settle, he remained in the tabernacle, a, a constant reminder that he was with them during the desert years. Yahweh, the I am that I am, the Almighty, dwelling with his people in their place of sin and rebellion. What humility. And so when this Lord, Yahweh, the I am that I am, the self-existent one, comes into the world and takes on human flesh in the person of his son, what does the Apostle John tell us? The word became flesh and made his dwelling, or literally, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace, of kindness and truth. God pitched his tent amongst us. He is with us, despite our sinfulness. I guess it's a common image in the media world, isn't it? You know, that self-promoting, self-important, preening actor or actress who demands an upgrade. They're put in the five-star hotel, but the decor is just not to their liking. The champagne is of insufficient quality. The service just falls short. Please, send me there. They demand an upgrade. It must be the Ritz or whatever. And the Lord is saying to David, look, in all those years when I dwelt with you in your sin and rebellion in the desert, did I ever say, I'd like an upgrade? Is that what God is like? Is he some self-promoting, self-preening prima donna? No. The Lord of glory is humble. He loves to be with his sinful people, despite their sin. He's not seeking alternative accommodation. He dwells happily in all who trust in him. Isn't that remarkable? That he's given us his Holy Spirit to live in sinful little you and me. That is the character of our God. Uh, life can get a bit fraught at Christmas, can't it? The brokenness of sin that we experience can be amplified at Christmas, can it not? 
our heartache comes to the fore, the fault lines in our relationships get prized open as the stress goes up and it's easy to feel, particularly if our sin is part of the picture. Can God still be with me? Maybe he has left me. No. He is with us, not in some utopian, sentimental dream world in which everyone behaves. No. He has promised to be with us to the very end of the age. And just as Yahweh was pleased and content to be with his people, even though they were rebellious in the desert, so Jesus came into the world for sinners like you and me to be with us. Yes, with us, even in family arguments. With us, even in panic about getting all the shopping done or that, that sort of atmosphere just, bef just before Christmas dinner is a, to be put on the table. Do you know, you know that atmosphere? No, maybe it's just our household. You know that slight, oh, the sprout's going to be ready at the same time as the potatoes. He's with us. He's not some distant deity who does not care for his people. He's not asking for alternative accommodation. He's gracious and kind and humble. And so he says to David in verse 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Remember how he took David from being a shepherd boy to fight Goliath, to defeat all his enemies, to become king of a united Israel, to shepherd the whole of Israel. I have been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies before you. I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. God is graciously with King David. He raises up the humble. And David responds in the next chapter. We don't have time to look at it. Who am I? There is none like you, Lord. How great you are, Lord. He recognizes how gracious God has been to him. And in Christ, he has been gracious to you and me, has he not? I know there's frustrations in the world. I know that there's different frustrations that we all face in life. But how gracious and kind of God in the person of the carpenter from Nazareth. How gracious and kind of God to take him from that city of David, Bethlehem, to exalt him from the cross to new life, to heavenly glory, to make a dwelling for you and for me in heavenly glory where we will be planted. We will not be disturbed anymore. There will be no more sin, no more death, no more hell where sorrow and sighing will flee away. Let us come and adore this Lord, not just in carol services or on Sundays, but as we shop, as we decorate, as we wash up, as we wrap presents, as we peel the spuds. Let's get the Christian music on and adore him. Who are we that he should have done this for us, that you and me should have God with us, God in us, taking us to eternal glory. So let's adore the character of our God. Secondly, let's see that the house the Lord builds is human and eternal. It's human 
and eternal. Now, of course, there are so many connotations about the house of David, house of the Lord. House means temple, it means dynasty. Let's see what he says in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now this king is human. God promises David that one of his sons, one of his offspring will be king, an offspring of David as we've already been thinking about. And what will he do? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This human king will establish a throne that lasts forever. Verse 16, and your house, that's David's house, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. How could this be? I mean, human beings die. Dynasties come to an end, human ones. So how can a dynasty, a throne, be eternal? Of course we know, don't we? We understand. But it's easy to gloss over these words written a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. They shed light, don't they, on the Christmas readings, as will happen in the next few weeks. The message that the angels announced to Mary, he will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. Here is an eternal man, God's son, God of God, light of light. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God begotten, not created. Human, yet God, divine, the son of God. We've just got to be careful this doesn't wash over us, don't we? we? We need to somehow connect to that great plan of God, that eternal plan of God that existed before the foundation of the world, that we're a part of. We're part of that story. Now, I don't know what your favorite Christmas film is. Sorry to change the subject slightly. Um, I, I was talking to somebody beforehand. I, I'm afraid I just... I just don't like most Christmas films, whether it's Nativity or Elf. I don't know. Sorry, it must be that there's something wrong with me because the rest of the world seems to love them. Um, so whether it's, you know, Wonderful Life or Lord of the Rings. I do like Lord of the Rings or Narnia. What about Gladiator? Anybody like Gladiator? <laughs> Anybody think that's a lovely Christian film? Uh, uh, not Christian, sorry, Christmas film. It's certainly not Christian. Why do I like Gladiator? I don't, I don't know what it says about me, that I, that I like a bit of sort of violent justice. But I like it because of some of the quotes, and this is one of the quotes. What we do in life echoes in eternity. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Why do I think that's so true? Well, I think it sort of sums up part of the Christian life. Not, you know, going to Elysium or, or all the stuff surrounding that in, in Gladiator, but human beings are eternal beings. We're created to be part of God's eternal kingdom. Every person we meet, every person in this room has been created for Christ and the glory of Christ. 
the whole history of the universe is for the church. People coming to eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, being united to him as his bride. That's what the whole show is all about. And what a privilege we have to know this, that church is not just a gathering on a Sunday. It's not an extra load on us this Christmas. It's easy to feel that, isn't it? It's the very purpose of the universe. What we do this Christmas will echo in eternity, one way or the other. As we serve the kingdom of God, as we work, as we invite, as we welcome others, as we socialize with that purpose, what we do, everything we do, echoes in eternity, for good or ill, because the human kingdom that Christ has brought is an eternal kingdom. The man Christ Jesus has died on the cross to usher in a new creation which billions of human beings will be apart forever. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our actions this Christmas mean someone is there forever? Means someone comes to know the purpose for which they were created. They've come to know Christ. What we do in life echoes in eternity. But we may say, but, but things seem at such a low ebb at the moment for Christianity in this nation. We witness, we invite, few believe. It all seems so weak. Well, remember that often the place of greatest weakness is the place of the greatest demonstration of the power of God. And this is our final point. Consider the beloved but beaten Son of God. Consider the beloved but beaten Son of God. Look with me at verse 14, if, if nothing else. This morning, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Remember that Saul had been David's enemy and over the years, he trusted God rather than taking matters into his own hands. He was persecuted, David was, until the Lord enabled him to win a victory over Saul. It's so easy to overlook the astounding nature of this statement, isn't it? Because we, we, we see th the end of the story rather than thinking what it would have been like for King David to, to hear this a thousand years before the coming of Jesus for the people of Israel to, to read this at a similar point in time. A king is coming, a son of David, who will reign forever, yet he will be disciplined for iniquity. He will be flogged, that's what the stripes are about, the marks on the back that look like stripes, the rod of men. And yet he will enjoy the steadfast love of God that will never be removed for him, from him, like it was from Saul because of his disobedience. So how will there be one who is flogged for sin, yet loved by God? 
who will be human and yet will reign forever. And of course we know how the story ends or ends and then begins again. The fulfillment of the flogging and beating that Jesus received, though he never sinned. He was disciplined, though not for his own sin. Jesus suffered flogging in our place, as Isaiah predicted. We esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the discipline that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus was flogged to heal us, to deal with our sin. This is the beloved Son of God who would be beaten with rods, flogged not for his sins but for ours, according to the eternal loving plan of God to bring forgiveness and new life to the subjects of his kingdom. We know this. Let's not let it wash over us. That first Christmas, the angels announced to Joseph to name him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. It was announced to Mary that her heart would be pierced by a sword because her son's heart would be pierced by a spear. So easy, if you're anything like me, maybe this just reveals more about me than you, to be weary about the added burdens that being a Christian at Christmas can bring. The stress on top of stress, the social demands on top of the social demands, the battle with unbelief. Will people take any notice? Will they be cynical as they always are? And that will hurt when they invite them to a carol service and they laugh. We need to have clear in our minds the discipline model of the cross of Jesus. Now this in no way undermines penal substitutionary atonement for those of you who know what that is. Jesus took our punishment in our place. He was flogged to heal us. But this is how we avoid weariness. Uh, we're leaving to Samuel, and we're coming forward into the New Testament, as I said we would. Hebrews chapter 12. There's still many depths to plumb in our understanding of the death of Jesus. If you think you've understood the death of Jesus, you've not yet understood the death of Jesus. There's so much gold, so much richness in the Word of God about the center of all history. Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm just going to read verse 3 for the moment. Consider, this is how we avoid weariness. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. The flogging, the beating, the crucifixion. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
How do we not have weariness at Christmas about inviting people to events? How do we not get faint-hearted about inviting the same person that we've already invited 20 times and they've said no? How do we not get faint-hearted when we're here in the pub with carol singing carols with a pint and there's people jeering over there? They may not be. How are we not faint-hearted? Well, we consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. Well, how does that help? That doesn't seem to help. Well, I'll just go through the logic. That's the application. Here's the logic. As you fight sin, you haven't shed your blood yet, verse 5. And that must refer to the suffering of Jesus and the cross, verse 2. Your suffering for being a Christian shows you are sons and daughters because God disciplines those he loves. See, the great temptation, isn't it, is to think that when we suffer, somehow God doesn't love us anymore. And what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to say is, look, consider the loved Son of God, the beloved Son of God. Did he suffer? Yes. That was not evidence that he was not a beloved Son of God. He was the loved Son of God. And yet he was disciplined by a loving Heavenly Father to produce the fruit of righteousness, a kingdom, an eternal kingdom of people with him. Therefore, as we go through hardships in the Christian life, whatever they are, we're to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The love God has for you has not changed. His character has not changed. Verse 12, therefore, Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Hard work, hostility, opposition. Even if we were to be slaughtered, as was happening in the first century, they are no evidence that God does not love us. Rather, they are evidence of it. This is just... I'm struggling to understand this, I have to confess. So we're up late, getting candles ready. We're physically weary because we were out yesterday giving leaflets through doors. Well, let's not let that develop into spiritual weariness. Question of whether God loves us or not. He loves us. He is with us. He's delighted to live in us, yet he disciplines us that we may share in the likeness of the one he loves. We invite someone to Christmas things and they refuse in a dismissive way. We serve our wider family, but because some do not know Christ, they take us for granted. Consider Jesus, those he loves, he disciplines. We stick out our neck and ask someone if they would like to read the Bible and they refuse. Consider him. We get to Boxing Day exhausted by the Christmas craziness and think, was that all worth it? Consider him. We're serving the one whose kingdom lasts forever. The one who is bringing billions of people into that new eternity. And when he was at his most weak, when he suffered most, what did he achieve? He defeated sin. He defeated the devil. He defeated death itself at the cross.
So let's us with him consider the joy set before us as he did. And let's not think that suffering these things is because he doesn't love us. No, the opposite is true. As we suffer, may his power, the power of God, to take people from darkness to light, to be in that eternity that he has won, may that power rest upon us. Amen.